So we're lucky to have um, Carol Bruska. Thank you. I would have failed that one. Not Back. That one. <laughs> and it's nice to have that Carrie Strong. We were actually talking about some of the unique spots in law enforcement right before we started that UDC uh, trauma. And you might get it just by what you're having to do in your, your investigation stuff. So it's interesting. We're on you. Okay. So um, some of you might have um, been introduced to me before a couple of weeks ago when I was here talking about Albuquerque Street Connect, but I'm back today because um, my CARES trauma is a, is a topic that is very, very important to me. I um, train law enforcement nationally on vicarious trauma. So in my mind, I can't do the law enforcement work, but I can do what I can to support those law enforcement officers. So today we're just going to kind of do a rundown on what it is and how to um, give you some tips and techniques to avoid or um, get through vicarious trauma. So the objectives that we're going to talk about today, we're going to define what vicarious trauma is. We're going to talk about the science behind why it occurs. We're going to help you to understand the symptoms of vicarious trauma and discuss methods to prevent vicarious trauma and promote the healing process. So the thing to keep in mind here is that um, there is a potential that if you're dealing with someone else's trauma on a regular basis, you can become traumatized yourself, but that doesn't mean that it has to be permanent, and that doesn't mean that it's going to um, make you lose your job or it's going to put you in a place where you can no longer do your work. So just keep that in mind throughout the, um, the training today that if you do um, feel like you're experiencing some of these signs and symptoms, then what you need to do is start working on being proactive about how to um, get through those. And certainly one of the things that I always recommend as a therapist and as someone who works with individuals who experience vicarious trauma, if you feel like the tips and tools that I suggest today aren't working, get some help, outside help. There's plenty of therapists around that can um, help you work through this because you don't want to lose your job and by losing your job, I mean, you don't want to not do the work anymore that you love because you're so traumatized that you feel like you can't be good at your job. So what are the causes that we have of stress? Um, there's several things that cause us stress in our daily life. So work can be a stressor. Maybe it's the type of work we're doing. Maybe it's the people that we work with. Maybe it's long hours, not feeling supported by our boss. Maybe it's um, that our work is just really hard. Or maybe for someone that's in law enforcement, there's a lot of pressure from the media. Um, maybe you're feeling a lot of pressure from outside influences that you feel like you can't do the job that you would like to do or in a way that you would like to do it. So there's definitely things that can be stresses that can be caused because of work. Certainly our family um, can cause us stress no matter how much we love them. Certainly we can have difficulties at home, like maybe we're um, in the middle of a divorce, or maybe we just got married, or it could be we're renovating our house or raising children. Even though we love our families, they can certainly be stressors, and sometimes it can be um, a stress that we can carry from home to work if we're not careful. And the environment, just being in the political environment that we've been in the last several years, I know that that's raised the stress level of many people, just um, knowing what's going on and, the, and social media um, making a big deal out of everything that goes on so that we feel like every piece of news is immediate and necessary to understand, that's going to cause us some extra stress. And then unexpected life events. So maybe we were going along just fine and 
um, we got sick or our spouse got sick or maybe something else happened in our life that caused us to come to a screeching halt. All of those things are going to cause stress. And anytime we have stress, that can increase the likelihood that that stress is carried to other areas of our life. And by the way, if you have any questions at all, feel free to just jump in and let me know what those are, and we will answer those as quickly as possible. So why is it that we have a tendency as human beings to ignore our stress? Sometimes we just overlook the warning signs. So maybe we notice that we're having more headaches or we're having sleep issues. Uh, maybe we're feeling more angry or irritable, and we just think, well, that was today. But then today goes to tomorrow and next week and next month. And we just want to ignore it because we don't want to have to deal with it. The thought of having to deal with stress becomes stressful. Sometimes we deny that we're stressed out. So I'm sure we've all had friends or family members that we can recognize are um, stressed out. And then you try to talk to them about it and they just became really angry. So what can you do about that? If they're, you know, someone's snapping at you because you're trying to help them through some stress, you're going to not be so likely to help them. So we downplay it. We pretend that, that it does, it's not in existence. And we believe that we're not vulnerable. This particularly happens, I see, in the, um, the helping field because we think we understand what stress is, so it's not going to affect us. We have the tools, so it's not going to affect us. We have to have the tools and use the tools in order to be um, managing our stress. And then we believe that knowing about it makes us immune. So that's along that same line. We think, I know all about stress, so it's not going to affect me. And if we, if we feel like stress is going to, um, that by admitting we have stress, it's going to make us feel inadequate, then we're not going to handle it either. Many times what happens is if we're in a work environment and it feels really stressful, but we look around us and we see other people and it seems to us that they're dealing well with the stress, then we'll be less, less likely to talk about our stress or do something about it. So we don't want to feel like they've got it managed. There's something wrong with me if I can't manage the stress as well. So how stress affects the mind and the brain. Um, it's, I'll go into some more detail about the neuroscience aspect of it, but what can happen with long-term stress is it can de decrease the number of our brain cells. So with a constant state of cortisol in our brain, there's a greater likelihood that our brain cells are not going to be able to um, replenish themselves, and they're actually going to decrease. There's some research right now that talks about um, a mindfulness practice can help us increase our brain cells. So a stress practice is going to help us decrease that, which is obviously not where we want to go. Um, again, we can have impaired memory related to excessive cortisol in our system. Um, and it's going to cause premature brain aging. So if you've got a very high stress job or you're not managing your stress, you could actually have a brain that do an MRI looks like it's older than someone who's actually your same age but doesn't. Um, is able to manage their stress. And it can make you more vulnerable to other things like strokes, aging, and stressful events. So we've all seen people who um, have very stressful jobs or don't manage their stress, and they might look 10 years older than somebody who's, who, um, who's very peaceful and able to manage their stress. When I look at the Dalai Lama and I see that he's in his 80s, you wouldn't guess that by the way he looks. Because even though he is potentially in or under a lot of stress, he's able to manage, manage it well. And consequently, it doesn't show up on his, in his body as much. And like I said previously, cortisol is going to dramatically decrease the rate of new brain cells being made. 
Yes. I have a question already. Absolutely. Matt Tinney with APD. So you said that long-term stress can decrease the number, but you just mentioned yes. like the Dalai Lama, is it like untreated or mismanaged? Well, what happens is, stress? yes, it's mismanaging your stress. So if you have stress but you don't treat it, that's where the damage comes in. It's just like any other thing. If we have a heart, a heart condition and we don't treat it, there's a greater likelihood we'll have a heart attack. If we have um, a broken leg and we don't treat it, more than likely that's going to cause long-term problems. So it's the same thing with our brain. If we are treating the brain, if we're not um, supporting the brain and rejuvenating, then we're going to have decrease the number of brain cells that are there. Gotcha. Thank you. So it affects emotions as well. Um, it can Chronic stress can be related to depression. And oftentimes this is because when we... Uh, when we have stress and we don't manage it, we can become feeling, begin to feel overwhelmed, hopeless, helpless, and that's going to bring on some depression. And then if we feel depressed at work and we come home and we're feeling depressed at home, it's more likely that those in our lives are going to pull back so we won't have that social support, which is just going to be a vicious cycle of going from um, depression to depression to depression. And any kind of stress um, over time can exacerbate any existing condition. So if you're dealing with someone who has diabetes, for instance, and they have a high level of stress, their diabetes can become worse. Uh, if you, all of you are working with people with mental illness, you might know that when, um, when somebody's on the street and something causes them to have more stress, they can es it can escalate the symptoms. So and over time, um, if you're not managing those things, they can, they can just get worse and worse. We know that even if someone is taking medication for high blood pressure, for diabetes, for mental health issues, those medications don't work as well under high stress conditions. So we want to do what we can to decrease the amount of stress so that um, everything that we've got in place is working more efficiently. And all of us who have experienced any kind of stress can vouch for the fact that it does um, increase your anxiety. And sometimes um, it increases our anxiety because we're stressed that we are so stressed, right? So you're feeling a lot of stress and you think, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? How am I going to manage this? I need to do something because I know stress isn't good for me. And then it actually increases your stress. And it can bring on mood swings, tearfulness, anger. Um, anytime that we've got stress in our lives, it can make us more vulnerable to, um, to any of those negative consequences. So there are benefits of stress. It's not such a negative thing all around. And this is something that we don't think about or we don't talk about very often. Um, stress can be good. So when, when we actually have stress in our body, one of the hormones that's created is some oxytocin. And oxytocin is the feel-good hormone, um, and it actually helps to motivate us to make changes. So stress is like an indicator, our brain and body saying, you need to make some changes. So maybe it's, you need to make some changes in your lifestyle, or you need to make some changes in the job that you have, the relationships that you have. So one of the benefits is that it tells us uh, it's time to do something different. And it's going to increase the oxytocin in our body, which is the, it's going to push us to make that change. And it lets us know, obviously, something's going on that we need to pay attention to. So we're going to move into vicarious trauma. And one of the reasons that we're doing this training today is 9-11. And we know that um, from all the research that many of the first responders working at 9-11 experienced vicarious trauma. And 
because of the work that they were doing in their efforts to help um, people survive, to help them um, to get out of that situation, they experienced vicarious trauma, which is having um, experiencing trauma by watching someone else's trauma or hearing about someone else's trauma by listening to someone tell us the story. It's something that can happen to anybody that's in the helping field, anybody that's doing the work that you all are doing. Um, it can happen to uh, across the board, just many people. It can happen to doctors who are um, seeing people in the emergency room and they're seeing people's pain and suffering on a daily basis. It can actually happen to attorneys who um, have to hear, um, if you're working with uh, divorce families or divorce couples, you're having to hear or watch them rip each other apart um, day in and day out, and that can, you can be traumatized that way. But vicarious trauma is you being traumatized by someone else's trauma. So here's some definitions that I've pulled that seem to kind of sum it up well. Uh, the impact of the directly traumatized individual's experiences upon others who were exposed to the events through the victim's explicit accounts of that experience. Now, when I think of vicarious trauma, a lot of the work I do is with Internet Crimes Against Children task force members, and they become traumatized because they are having to um, go through search computers or telephones or um, drives, and what they're seeing is they're seeing child's children being exploited on, a, on a multiple um, times throughout their day. So this can traumatize them because they're witnessing something that they have no ability to do anything about that has already happened and you're seeing this horrific experience and yet there's nothing that you can do anything about it. So it's a stress which develops from the knowledge of a traumatizing event and then it's changes which occur in the person's way of experiencing their self and the world as a result of being indirectly exposed to an event. The, one of the things that I want to bring up on this slide is that um, trauma is a very individual experience. So what may be trauma to me might not be trauma to someone else in this room or vice versa. So for me, maybe um, seeing a dog get hit by a car would be very traumatizing whereas maybe someone else that wouldn't be um, as life-changing for them. So each of us has to um, get it, understand that, that we need to be compassionate when someone says, this was very traumatic for me because there's not a one-size-fits-all. There's not a one definition of this is trauma and it will fit all of us. Another question. Yes. Um, <laughs> Detective Savage with APD. So you talk about... Um, like helping people through that, the, the, the maybe the CACU detectives, people like that. How do you avoid it not affecting you then? If you're the one that's having to hear them talk about it over and over and over again, aren't you in the same kind of boat that they are? Yes, but I am a huge advocate of self-care and, um, and talking about how people can manage their stress. So I have a really strong self-care practice. Okay. So I get monthly, I get acupuncture. Monthly, I get um, massage. I meditate at least once a day. So what I try to remind people is taking care of yourself is kind of like maintaining your car. We all buy a car, or you know, many of us buy a car, and we don't expect that we can just drive it without ever changing the tires, getting the oil changed, getting the brakes changed. We know that's part of owning a car, and yet we don't treat ourselves with that same amount of care. 
So the key is recognizing that self-care is work and it's not always easy. But if you want to continue to do whatever kind of work it is you're doing, you have to do that work. And the more you do the work, the more it becomes habit. And the more it becomes habit, it's just second nature. Um, I can tell for myself because I'm really conscious of my own self-care when I haven't been doing it and I really begin to notice. So it's like my yoga practice. If I don't do my yoga practice, then for a couple days I'll notice that I get up in the morning and I feel like I'm 110 years old. So it's like my body's saying, okay, you know, you got to pay attention. So it's really creating a practice that works for you and then following through with it and then being very, very aware of what your body's telling you. Thank you. Sure. So what happens when we're traumatized? Um, what we're going to talk about in part of the brain is we're talking about the reptilian part of the brain um, for this particular slide. And the reptilian part of the brain is instinctual. So it means that we don't have to think about it. So just like if I had a ball and I threw it to someone, they wouldn't have to say, I see a ball coming to me. What do I do now? Oh, I guess I should put my hands up. Right? It just happens. We just do it through instinct. Hopefully we do it through instinct. If not, we get hit in the face quite a bit. Um, our brain responds the same way to trauma. So when our brain sees a trauma, um, and again, it doesn't know if it's our trauma or if it's someone else's trauma, when our brain sees a trauma, it goes into fight, flight, or freeze mode. And the main objective is get this person out of this situation alive. So it will do whatever it needs to. In order to um, manage the situation, it will release a bunch of cortisol throughout our body, and it will focus on the areas that we would need to fight or get out of the experience. So our heart rate will increase, our breathing becomes more shallow, our blood vessels constrict, uh, we might feel some um, increase in heat, we might feel our hands get a little bit sweaty, we might feel that... We have some tension in our legs to prepare us to run. We might have some tension in our upper body because it's preparing us to fight. We might feel some um, tension in our stomach because during this, this fight, flight, or freeze mode, our digestion slows down. So anything that's not absolutely necessary for survival slows down, and only those things that are necessary for survival are in play. So our digestion slows down, our sex drive slows down. Um, again, anything that's not going to be absolutely mandatory to get us through will slow down. And if we repeatedly experience a trauma or we experience, repeatedly experience someone else's trauma, this is happening on a daily basis. For many law enforcement officers, that's what happens. So they get a rush of cortisol, they get a rush of adrenaline. You get a little bit of um, oxytocin that's going to help you motivate you to do something. But then you've got this big flood of um, all of these hormones, and then you work your way through that incidence, and then hopefully you're doing something to then decrease that. Animals in nature have a great way to manage this. What they do is, if you've ever seen, um, taking your dog for a walk, if you've seen two dogs and they're walking, and they're um, getting ready to meet each other, and then... They don't know if it's, a, if it's a good dog or not a good dog, what the situation's going to be. And then they separate, and then you see them shake their bodies. That's them automatically resetting. So what they do is they shake their bodies. That takes their cortisol levels back down to status quo, and then they move forward. <clears throat> so I can see this in my own dog, and I can see the consequences of when he doesn't have the time to what we call shake it off. 
because then it layers upon each other. So if he doesn't take that time in between seeing one dog to seeing the next dog, each time he sees a new dog, you can see his um, anxiety is up a little bit higher. So by that same token, if we consider that if we're being repeatedly um, experiencing traumatic stress or stress on a daily basis, what's going to happen is it's going to build and then it's going to build on top. And each time we have less and less tolerance for the new trauma coming in. So I had um, an interesting experience last summer that really um, brought home to me how vicarious trauma and our brain, in our brain, vicarious trauma and trauma can be experienced in the same way. So, um, Last summer, my son was driving. He called me up and told me that he was in a car accident, that someone had um, hit him. So my first reaction was, are you okay? Is the other person okay? And did you call the police? And so when he said yes to all those things, and I knew that the immediate crisis was over, my vicarious trauma mom kicked in and I said, you've been through a traumatic experience. <laughs> Do you have any water in the car? If you have some water in the car, you need to start drinking water. And I said, and then later on today, we're going to go for a nice long walk, or you need to go to the gym, and then you also need to talk with your friends tonight to spend some time rehashing what happened to kind of help you process it so it doesn't get stuck. I told him that he might have some nightmares, that there was a potential that um, when he closed his eyes, he might see the accident again, but all of those things were normal, and they would, they would pass over time. And if they didn't, that was okay. We'd get him some help. Two weeks after his accident, which, by the way, he was able to manage through, he worked through, it was fine. <laughs> Two weeks after his accident, I got a call from a client who was wanting to see me because he had witnessed a car accident. So he hadn't actually been in the car accident, but he was driving to work. He'd witnessed a car accident and then just tried to go on with the rest of his day. Um, after that, every time he drove past that road, he was triggered again, and every single thing about that accident came back to him. Um, every single, uh, he could hear the cr crunching of the cars again. Uh, his stress level went up. He was having a hard time sleeping. So everything that you would think would happen if he would experience that stress and that, or that trauma had actually, he was experiencing vicariously. So that led me to have a real-life example of me knowing exactly what that was like. So we worked a lot on how he could manage his experience at that part, at that point, and what he could do to work through that. And over time, um, he was able to work through that. But because he was trying to ignore it as just a, it wasn't me, I just saw it, um, there was a lot of consequences that came to him that took him much longer to get through that. So it was really a fascinating firsthand experience that I got to see um, that this really does happen in that way. <coughs> so this is just a slide. I won't go through every single one of these, but this is just to highlight all of the areas that are impacted by stress and how it's um, impacted. If you want a copy of this slide, I'm sure we can get you a copy or we can send the presentation out. But there's very little parts of the body that are not impacted when we experience a trauma. So if you are um, feeling that you have been vicariously traumatized, some of the things that you might see initially are you might feel um, some emotional reactions that are very strong. So you might have, um, particularly if you haven't been managing your stress after other um, initial traumas. So you might feel some anger, some sadness. You might feel very vulnerable. You might, and when you experience these things, you might feel really out of control. 
because particularly if this is not how you normally work in the world, when you're suddenly feeling very anger, angry or sad, it's going to make you feel very vulnerable and um, like you're losing control of your life. There's going to be physical symptoms, like I spoke about earlier. We've got that rush of cortisol. You might have digestive problems, headaches, sleep problems, um, emotional exhaustion, physical illness. That's because if you haven't gotten rid of those excess hormones in your body and they're just sitting there, and then you're compounding that by adding more stress hormone, then you're going to have those physical symptoms. Sometimes people have um, spiritual concerns or worldview, what we call worldview concerns, where they um, feel like their higher power has let them down. So if you are watching people um, that have been traumatized for many times or you know, in different instances, what can happen is you can. some people feel like my higher power has let me down because my understanding of this power was that there is good in the world and that, um, that people overall think bad things shouldn't happen. And why is this happening if my higher power is supposed to be a good higher power? So that does happen sometimes, and again, if it does, that's something that's um, normal, but it's again something that you want to get addressed. We oftentimes have our foundation of how we work within the world based on our spiritual or worldview, and when our foundation is rocked, that can be very, very devastating. So the long-term effects, like we talked about previously, you can have physical effects, um, like difficulty falling asleep, you can become sick more often, you can um, become depressed or anxious, you can have a tendency to isolate yourself and withdraw from others, and the more you do that, then that's going to exacerbate any other issues. So maybe you used to come home from work and you would talk with your spouse about what was going on, but because you're feeling so overwhelmed and withdrawn, you come home and you don't talk. And oftentimes our spouses feel like, what did I do? It must be my fault that they're not talking to me. And then an argument starts, which just makes you withdraw even more, which just makes those problems even greater. So these are all symptoms. If you're seeing these things, um, we can certainly talk about how you can move forward. And relationally, again, you, if you're alienating your friends, your family, others in your life, that's going to just add to your stress, but it's also because of the stress. So here's what we call the window of tolerance. And um, what the window of tolerance is, it's the amount of stress that we can tolerate. So when I was talking previously about my dog and if he didn't shake off his stress, um, he couldn't stay within that window of tolerance, so he would go to the hyperarousal zone. And this is going to be that you've got a lot of emotional reactivity. You might notice that you're um, very angry or you're very... Um, Little things that didn't used to bother you bother you a great deal, or you snap at your friends or your coworkers. Um, it's going to be you might have some flashbacks of the incident. And hypoarousal is when there's a lack of sensation. So maybe things that should bother us um, don't bother us at all anymore. So we feel completely numb of our emotions. Maybe we don't. Uh, we come home and we just want to sleep or veg in front of the TV. And, you know, occasionally that kind of thing is fine, but if it's on a regular basis and we can't seem to motivate ourselves to get out of it, that would be the hypo-arousal zone. So we want to stay within that window of tolerance where we understand that there's some stress and some days we're doing better than others, but for the most part, we can manage our day-to-day -day life. So there are many ways to combat vicarious trauma. 
Uh, first and foremost, we want to be as um, proactive as possible. You want to make sure that you're getting enough sleep. Sleep is so crucial because that's the time that our brains can heal, and that's the time that we can really um, process through things and restore ourselves enough that we can move forwards. Most of the time, people in law enforcement do not get enough sleep, so most people laugh when I say get enough sleep, but it's something to strive for. So the best thing to do is to have good sleep hygiene, meaning go to sleep and get, a, get up every day at the same time as much as possible. Um, you don't want to be doing anything on the screens for a couple hours before bed. You want to keep your bedroom for sex and sleep, and that's it. If you're taking your work into your room and you're sitting on your bed doing your work, your brain is going to make that connection. Oh, yeah, when I'm in this room, I'm supposed to be doing such and such. So you want to condition your brain to think that I'm in this bed. The only two things I do here are sleep and sex. And if I'm not doing one, I'm doing the other. So there's not going to be any things that happens. Um, you want to make sure that you're getting enough healthy food to eat. When we're under a lot of stress, we burn protein and we burn other nutrients, oftentimes um, vitamin B. So you want to make sure you're replenishing yourself. You want to have some lean protein. There's also things that are called probiotics and prebiotics. If you're not familiar with those, those are things that help your gut to be balanced. And like I said previously, with um, lots of cortisol in your system, your digestion gets out of whack. So you want to balance that by making sure that you're doing what you can um, to, to eat healthy. So probiotics would be things like maybe some yogurt or um, some kefir. You might want to try some prebiotics like eating um, a banana or having some onions and garlic. Um, so if you know that you're having a stressful day, dark chocolate is another prebiotic. So if you know you're having a stressful day, take a nice turkey sandwich, um, a big glass of water, a big bottle of water, and then a little dark chocolate and a banana. That's going to help you get through that stress. Doing some light exercise will benefit you because that helps your body get through or work through the uh, cortisol. Try to vary the work that you do. So if you know that there's part of your work is very, very intense and there's other things that you can do that aren't as intense, try to vary that. Try to not have days where days on end where you're doing really high intense work. And then each day, do something pleasurable. So like I was talking about um, earlier, this is work. It's something that you have to do to take care of yourself. Part of that is making sure that every day you've done something that is pleasurable, that brings you happiness, because that's going to help counterbalance the stress. So focus on the things you did well. Many times we go home at the end of the day and think, that didn't go right, I, I made a mistake there, or we messed up there, but not very often do we go home before we, before we leave the office and say, wow, I did a really great job here. Or for the last three days, I've done a really great job, and today was bad, but I can look back on those last three days, and that will help me know that I have the ability to do well, so I can do that again. You want to learn from your mistakes, so take a look at those and say, what did I learn from this instance, and how can I move forwards? What can I do differently next time? Sharing a joke with someone is good, particularly if it's a coworker who understands your level of stress, because then you can joke about things that maybe you can't talk about to other people. So I know in each um, area of our work, there's jokes that outsiders wouldn't appreciate or understand. So share those jokes with people that you do, because when you're laughing, um, that's going to bring some oxytocin in, which is going to help decrease the cortisol. Praying, meditating, and relaxing is a really good thing to do every day because 
just spending that time breathing will bring down our heart rate. It's going to increase the oxygen that we get to our brain, which is going to help us think more clearly and make better decisions. And it's going to be a time for ourselves where we're focusing on just our needs. And then supporting a colleague is another great thing to do because by giving to someone else or by focusing on someone else, it helps us take the focus off of ourselves, which is going to be beneficial because we will then have a moment break from our own experience. Some other ways are reach out to your own supports. So being resilient is um, the, the best indicator of resilience is having and using social supports. So you want to do that. If you have a lot of people around you that would support you, but you're not using them, then they're going to be of no benefit. You also want to be able to keep some boundaries with others because that will allow you then to know that you can have a stopping point and you won't run yourself into the ground. It's this thing that we talk about in um, therapy. It's the uh, emotional bank account. And we all need to have somebody filling our emotional bank account. So just like a regular bank account, if we um, give our money away and give our money away, soon we will have nothing. And then soon after that, we're going to be in the deficit. So our emotions and our own um, psyche is the same way. We need to make sure that we are replenishing ourselves or somebody else is replenishing us. You want to try to spend some time breathing. Ten deep breaths in and out can automatically slow our heart rate. So just practicing that whenever you have the moment, if you're driving around and you're at a stoplight, spend that time just doing some deep breathing. Create a safe place in your work area. So I know if your work area is maybe your car, that's not necessarily so easy. But if you can find a safe place um, where you have things that remind you of the positives in your life, that can be a great tool to use. What we know is that just like um, we were talking about vicarious trauma and how um, our brain uh, creates hormones to protect us, if we can recreate a positive memory, the more detail we can create, our brain again will recreate the positive um, hormones that we experienced during that time. So if you had a great vacation in Hawaii and you can close your eyes and think about that vacation and think how the sun felt and how the sand felt and the smells that you smelled and maybe the food that you tasted. You can hear the ocean going back and forth. The more vivid that memory can be, the greater likelihood that you can create, recreate every hormone that you produced when you were on that vacation. So each time you do that, that can be a mini vacation there. And then try switching on and off throughout your, I mean, at the beginning of your day and at the end of your day. Try to the best of your ability to say, okay, I'm going into work. This is work me, and this is home me. So be able to to have those boundaries where you say, okay, just like a superhero, um, like Clark Kent, he didn't always wear his Superman costume, right? There was times when he was Clark Kent in a suit with his glasses. So what do you do to take yourself from Clark Kent to Superman and then back to Clark Kent again? You want to pay attention to what your body is saying. So if you're, if you're feeling like you've got some stress going on, what is that telling to you? Are you feeling some stress in your shoulders? Maybe what's happening is you're going into fight mode. If you're feeling some, some digestion, maybe your stomach is growling your, or stomach is upset, maybe you're feeling helpless and hopeless because you're in um, freeze mode. Or maybe your legs are really restless or you're having some tension. Again, you could be in fight mode. So you can use your five senses to help reduce your stress by um, going outside and 
and counterbalancing everything that you took in. So when we experience a stress, oftentimes it's triggered by one of our senses. So like I was talking previously, when my client would drive past that same location, he would be triggered because he would see that same spot in the road. So the more senses that are triggered during a trauma, the, the more senses that you need to um, trigger to counterbalance. So the best, one of the best things that you can do is whenever you have the opportunity, go outside. Take a walk outside. Then you're going to be stimulating your ears by listening to the birds, the, your nose by possibly smelling some flowers or smelling something, the newly cut grass. Maybe you can just um, put your hand on the grass to just feel what that feels like. Looking around the visual of seeing the beauty of New Mexico where we live, those are all ways that will automatically help you decrease your stress. And then it's always really a great idea to ask for help. Whoever you need, whoever you can feel you can go to, do that. If you don't feel that you have someone in your circle, then reach out for help. You can, honestly, there's books that you can use. Amazon has tons of books on stress reduction. Or you can go to get some professional help. And if you're feeling like you need some professional help, the best thing to do is ask others that um, for some uh, suggestions of who they've used or interview a therapist and say, this is what I'm going through. Do you have any expertise in that area? As a therapist, I can tell you that it's perfectly fine to do a phone interview. And because a relationship with a therapist is not like the relationship that you have with the grocery store clerk. So the grocery store clerk, it's a matter of, hi, how you doing? Good to see you. Oh, I see you're buying some oranges today. Did you notice that the avocados are on sale? With a therapist, it's a relationship that um, where you have to feel comfortable, where you have to be able to trust them, where you have to know that you will be in a safe environment. So this one um, is one that I love, and obviously there's others in the room that enjoy this as well. It's, it's a quick look at the um, things that you can do to create happiness and the amount of effort and time it takes. So if we look at something like walking tall, research shows that if you just walking tall instead of kind of slouching over, walking tall will make you feel better. And it's a simple thing that you can do and practice all day long. And it's, so it doesn't take a lot of effort and there's a little bit of reward from that. Something like keeping a gratitude journal is higher in effort, but it's really high in reward. So volunteering, again, it's recognizing that we are thankful for things, volunteering, giving to other people, those are very high reward things to do. So it's a nice little list that you can um, have to keep in mind the, the quick fix that you can do. So it doesn't take a lot of um, effort to take a nap, but it does give you some reward of increasing happiness. So resilience is what we're hoping for. We're hoping to give people today some ideas to help them work through things and come out the other side. So here's um, by some people that I feel are very resilient. So we've got Nelson Mandela, do not judge me by my successes, judge me by how many times I fell down and got back up again. And I think that's really the key to resilience, being able to get back up again. I know at least for everybody in this room, we have some level of resilience, and I know that because we all walked in this door. When we were very, very young, before we learned to walk, we were crawling and we stood up, and more than likely, we fell down, and then more than likely, we got up again, and we probably fell down again, but something in us told us to move forward, told us we can get through this, we can get to the other side. 
I would imagine most everyone out there um, has at some point fallen in love. And oftentimes that happens when we're pretty young. And then we break up with that person or they break up with us. And it feels like our world is over. And we're never going to be able to get through that until we get through that. And then we allow ourselves to get into another relationship. And then maybe that one breaks apart too. But we're building skill. So kind of ironically, the more experiences, the negative experiences we have, the more the massive library of experiences that we have to look back on that can help us get through. So out of the massive suffering emerge the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. And that's true. It's Again, it's unfortunate that in order to be very resilient, we have to go through trauma, but that's what will help pull us through. So what is resilience? It's the, the ability to withstand stress and trauma. It develops over time. It's not necessarily innate. I think we all have some level of it, but there are definitely people that we know that when there's something that happens, they got, you know, Starbucks got their coffee order wrong and it's ruined their whole entire day. There are people that aren't very resilient. And then there's other people that they could witness something awful and they could experience something and you see them and they just work through that. There's um, many people that came through concentration camps that had this level of resilience that was amazing and outstanding, and we just don't know um, how they could do that. And yet there's other people that don't have that. So like I said, it's not something necessarily where everybody has the same level, but we can learn to build that. And we do that by having relationships with others, by experiencing things that are not necessarily pleasant, but understanding this too will pass. And it isn't indicative of, of not having stress, but having coping and problem-solving skills. So this is my favorite bounce-back slide. Um, resilient skills can help to mitigate the effects of stress and support people to bounce back to a healthier, happier place. So what we want people to do that are um, working in any field, but particularly in helping fields, is we want you to get to the level of compassion satisfaction. So even though your work is very difficult and it takes a toll on you potentially, you have the ability to say, even though I'm doing this, there are many positive aspects to my helping that make me want to continue. So it's like when we started to do whatever our area of work is, we did it because for some reason we were motivated to do that. And when you're feeling down and like you don't want to do this for another day, try to reach back and think, why is it I initially got into this field? And what is it that motivated me? And can I pull on some of those resources to help me move forward? It can be related to our perspective on the work that we do. So if we go to work and we have an attitude of, I hate this work, it's not fun, the people that I'm dealing with are just annoying, my coworkers are annoying, I hate my boss, that's going to impact how we view our work and how um, satisfied we are with our work. So it's a matter of shifting our perspective. And one of the ways that we can do that certainly is by doing what I say, the three good things exercise. So at the end of each day, we write down three good things that happened. And by doing that, it forces us into a position of looking for good things. So just like if I asked you, wherever you are, to look around your room and see how many red things you, um, you see, and then for the rest of the day, focus on how many red things you would probably notice a lot more red things than you would on a daily basis otherwise. So it's that same shifting our perspective to looking for the positive and then 
um, making that a practice. There was some research that was that shows that someone that was doing that, or people that were doing that over three months, even six months after they stopped doing that, they were still getting the benefits.